Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. And uh, I just have to say this is a pleasure to do this program. I look forward to it whenever I have a chance to spend uh, with my guests. Uh, and really, I just get out of the way and let them share their hard verse that they like to talk about. But I want to thank you, those of you that send us emails and questions and support. Uh, we'd love to hear whether you like this program, and, and I appreciate you giving me this chance to to study scripture and uh, our, our commitment to this program is because our love for this wonderful word that our Lord has given us to guide our lives and inspire us and to help us learn how to love one another and love him and uh, and to serve him and that's that's our call and uh, but we in this program kind of the angle we recognize is that some verses are a little difficult and especially they can be difficult from one Christian to the next depending on our theological tradition and that's what we'd like to look at um, and if you want to find out more about the program, you can go to the, uh, the chnetwork.org website or deepinscripture.com. And if you want to send us a question, you can do so at dis at chnetwork.org. Our guest today is Jim Papandrea. Did I say that right, Jim? Yep, Papandrea. Papandrea, okay. Yep. And um, it's a great to have you back. I haven't seen you since your Journey Home episode. Uh, it's been a couple years now, right? Yeah, yeah. It's good to see you. Uh, before we jump into scripture, tell the audience uh, what you're doing, and uh, you got a recent book coming out. Yeah, so I am uh, a professor of church history at a Methodist seminary, Garrett Evangelical Seminary, on the campus of Northwestern in uh, Illinois, and um, I am a former Methodist uh, clergy and now a Catholic layperson, and, and uh, but I'm here teaching at the Methodist seminary. I teach church history, early and medieval church. And my latest book is called The Earliest Christologies, and uh, it basically is uh, about you know what people thought and believed about Jesus Christ in the early church. Wow, that's exciting! And uh, if people, they, I'm sure they can go to Amazon.com and get any of your books, right? Or, yeah. Okay, man. Well, thanks so much, Jim. Uh, what, given all your background, early church fathers, and church history, there's lots of verses we could have chosen. Uh, to discuss, and may have to have you back, okay? But you chose a verse uh, from Colossians. Explain the verse, uh, maybe read it quickly, and then tell the audience, given your background, why was it a problem? Why was it a hard verse? Right. Well, okay. So um, the uh, the passage I chose is Colossians two eight, and um, it became a hard verse when I was being called into the Catholic Church. Right. It it was deceptively easy when I was a Protestant. And so I'm just going to read it, and I'm actually going to read it from um, the translation that I normally used to use as a Protestant. Um, it's still a good translation, uh, but this is, uh, this is Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, you know, the funny thing is, is that uh, I had forgotten this, but when I went to my Greek and looked it up, I had it underlined from back in the day when I was a Protestant, I had this verse <laughs> underlined. And and this is one of the sort of key passages uh, that, that the Protestant world uses to support the idea of sola scriptura or scripture alone. In other words, as if the passage is somehow um, opposed to tradition and of course the protestant reformation uh part of their critique against the catholic church was 
uh, that that they uh, believed and taught that the Catholic Church has added sort of these man-made traditions that weren't there at the beginning. Um, though, although that's a myth, that's not actually true. But that was the story uh, that I was taught as a Protestant, and um, and so this basically led a lot of Protestants to think that tradition is something that should be jettisoned as a man-made thing, um, and and only Scripture should should be our authority. And let me well, first of all, what translation was that you? Uh, NRSV, no, um, New American Standard, NASB. NASB, which is actually yeah. one of the I either used either used that or NIV. Mm-hmm. or the RSV uh, when I was a Protestant pastor too. And um, the I remember the NASB we always uh, took as the answer book when you studied Hebrew because mm-hmm. it was so literal translation right. to the Hebrew Old Testament. I mean, it was the answer yeah. book. Uh, right, and it's that way with Greek in the New Testament as well. That's why I say it's still a good translation to use alongside of uh, a Catholic Bible. Though I find that comparing what you read to, uh, as I was reading along with the Revised Standard Version, that it it talks about the elemental spirits of the world, and the RSV has of the universe, and, uh, I, and yeah. I find that interesting because the word world uh, has a, a a different meaning in other New Testament books. God so loved That's the world. The... Uh, you don't be of the world. Acts of the world have really a negative influence. Sure. Well, the Greek word there, of course, is cosmos. So universe is probably a better translation. And that is the point, because in this passage, what Paul is referring to as the elemental spirits or the elements, um, that word for elements is uh, stoichia. And, and, you know, the, the word that we use to study the elements in science is stoichiometry. It's the elements. But um, what he's probably referring to there is astrology. Yeah. Astrology was such a big part of all Greco-Roman uh, pagan religion. And so so that's what he's talking about there when he talks about the spirits of the elements of the world or of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not so much um, uh, contrasting the ways of Christ and the ways of sinful man. He's talking about other religions and pagan ideas. But yes, right. And so parallel with human tradition, we're dealing with human religions, human pagan practices. I mean, that's the context. Philosophies, exactly. empty, you know, philosophies used to trick people, to pull them. Uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of a, a passage which I think is coming true even as we speak. <laughs> I'm a little tongue-in-cheek here, but I'm, I'm not sure I really am, where Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of stress for men will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and the list goes on, as well as holding the form of religion but denying the power of it. It's talking about the end times there, but it's these other ideas that draw people away from the true way of Christ. That's, That's right. the context of this passage. That's right. That's right. And but, the proof of that, the, the, the proof of that is, is when you read the context, you read the verses around it. You read verses 6 and 7. And he's talking about uh, true tradition or faithful tradition. And, you know, he says, uh, therefore, you have received Christ Jesus, the things you have received, um, being established in your faith and instructed. This verses six and seven are all about good tradition that he's now contrasting with the uh, false tradition that some of these former pagan Roman Christians or, or Christians in general 
former pagan Christians have uh, have been kind of falling back into the ways of their former traditions. And um, if you look at the passage, you know there's there's a there's a parallelism there, um, almost like one of those Hebrew parallels parallelisms that we see, you know, in the Psalms where you can tell there's an equation going on. So when Paul says, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, according to is a parallelism which tells you that what Paul means by the tradition of men in this passage is exactly those traditions that focus on and worship the elements, the elementary principles or spirits of the world or the universe. So the, the pagan traditions that are threatening to take his audience captive or carry them off, depending on your translation, are uh, their old pagan beliefs, astrology, um, and, you know, uh, all the kinds of things, the worship of angels, the uh, worship of the planets, all the kind of things that he talks about elsewhere in, uh, in Colossians. And, and we know that, you know, there's a specific heresy going on in, in Colossae and in the early church at this time, we call it docetism, but it was the heresy that said that Jesus Christ was not really human. And, um, and so this is the concern of Paul, that they're going to fall back into this sort of uh, pagan, almost a early Christian version of New Age, where they believed Jesus was a spirit, maybe even a divine spirit, but not human. And you can see when in the very next verse, in verse 9, he says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells, in bodily form. So right there in that one verse, Paul gives us the two natures of Christ, the divinity and the humanity. And these these docetics were denying the humanity of Jesus. And, and that's the kind of thing that could, you know, that, that could lead people astray um, and away from Christ, away from the true Christ. And that's really the concern here. It's not, it's not that Paul's against tradition, it's that he's against heresy. Yeah, but he's, Okay, that's awesome. Now let's carry that a little farther. Still in your Methodist shoes. Yeah. All right. And you're teaching at a Methodist seminary, so you, I imagine you're um, uh, being careful from time to time. But this is an issue that would be a, a lively issue for a Catholic teaching at a Methodist seminary. But let's keep you in your Methodist loafers first, and and ask then, given that passage, Colossians two eight. How would you deal with Second Thessalonians chapter two fifteen, when Paul said, "So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter." Right. So, in you know, in my Protestant days, I probably would have um, accepted what I had been taught about the interpretation of Colossians two eight that Paul is opposing tradition. And then I would have interpreted the other passages where Paul is in favor of tradition in a softer way. Well, in that sense, he's talking about, you know, uh, things that we find in Scripture, you know, that are taught and handed down. What, what I didn't realize at that time, though, was, I mean, I guess I intellectually knew it, but it didn't really sink in. What I didn't realize is that um, the things I think of as Scripture, specifically the New Testament, didn't exist yet when Paul was writing this. I mean, he's writing the New Testament, sure, but the point is, is that when Paul talks about tradition and the things, the teachings that are handed down from Jesus to the apostles and to the next generation, 
uh, to the early bishops and the early Christians. When he's talking about those things, that is tradition that came before the New Testament. So I had to eventually sort of struggle, and this is where the passage became a difficult one for me because I had to struggle with the reality that um, when you're talking about the New Testament, tradition comes before Scripture. (laughs) And they wouldn't have even been able to compile the New Testament without tradition to help them do it. I have a whole chapter on that in my book, Reading the Early Church Fathers, where I talk about the development of the canon and how, you know, um, it's really the church that gave us the Bible, not the way the not the other yeah, way around. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I remember when the same thing confronted me on my own journey was when it was it's very common practice and it's a good, blessed practice. And we're glad that people, um, uh, you know, put their lives in danger, getting scriptures into places where they're not allowed. Right. You know, smuggling New Testaments and smuggling Bibles into Russia and Albania. And that's a, God bless them for doing that. But it goes with this almost this idea that these books were created to convert people out of nothing into Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible existed. And the, I remember it, it was an eye opening awakening for me when I realized that every single New Testament, except possibly the Gospels, but every New Testament epistle was written to people who already believed. Right. So before they received one word of the written New Testament, they already believed and had surrendered to Jesus Christ, knew the Trinity, whether they used the word or not. They knew all of that. So in other words, what was that? That was tradition. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, it, when you read the letters, um, they're not evangelistic in the way we might think of that. They are uh, helping people live the Christian life. Um, and uh, the other thing to remember is that in the early church, you know, um, and, and I think throughout Catholic tradition, the idea of conversion is a much more complex concept than simply making a decision, you know. But the Protestant Reformation, because during the Reformation, they wanted people to decide to be Reformed as opposed to Catholic. The Protestant Reformation turned conversion into a, a decision that you could look back on, you know, yeah. as an event. And I think that that doesn't do justice to the to the nature of conversion as a as a concept. Or, or we use Paul's personal experience as the model for everybody. Yeah. Uh, yes, Paul had a, a specific, unique call from God that knocked him off his horse and made him blind for a time. And then when he surrenders, you know, he, he has this uh, infused knowledge and awakening to Jesus Christ and the equivalent of the church. That ain't the model for everybody. Right. Uh, and, and most people, that's not what happens. However, we have the freedom of our will to choose to follow the grace that we've been given. It's still our responsibility, which is much more in line with your Methodist background than my Calvinist background. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of affinities between Methodist theology and Catholic. It, it, you know, coming into the church from the Methodist world wasn't uh, theologically difficult uh, for me because, you know, there's there's connections there. But, uh, I mean, it has its other we have our other differences, yeah. Eucharistic yeah. theology being, you know, being one of them. But, um, but you're right. I mean, but the thing about being, you know, in, being in the Protestant world, 
um, and being raised in this assumption that everything we need for faith is in the Bible, um, that really falls apart when you start studying the history of the church and the early church. Because um, when you start, especially, you know, what I do, historical theology, when you're studying the councils, for example, and you say, well, wait a second, um, how could we ever understand the doctrine of the Trinity if we didn't have tradition helping us interpret Scripture? And when you study the Council of Nicaea, for example, you find out that the heretics were actually the sola scriptura party of, at the council. So the Bible only people were the, it turns out, were the heretics, and and Orthodox theology could only be explained and clarified uh, with both scripture and tradition. In fact, I think, I think if I remember correctly, that was the very issue that started John Henry Cardinal Newman on his journey to the church when he studied the fourth century. Arian heresies when he realized from a sola scriptura standpoint he'd have been on the wrong side. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the very issue. Okay, let's go back to that passage, that Colossians 2 passage, maybe with in our background remembering the Second Thessalonians passage about standing firm and hold to the traditions, whereas Colossians says, you know, don't hold to human traditions. The, the problem arises amongst Christianity worldwide, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, and all the different uh, permutations of the Protestant groups, Methodist, Calvinist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, um, Assembly of God, Church of Christ, uh, Church of What's Happening Now, you know, how, how do you discern between something that we believe, my little group of Christians believe strongly, and I believe it's from Scripture, but the church across the street also believes in Jesus and believes in the, the fallibility of Scripture, yet they interpret it differently. Right. So there's the conundrum of trying to understand whether it's a human tradition or whether it's a tradition to stand firm on. Well, that's right. And I mean, the very, the very fact that two Christian groups can both see the page of Scripture and agree on the words that are on the page but disagree on the interpretation proves that we need something outside of Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. We can use Scripture, and, and we do want to use the whole witness of Scripture to interpret Scripture. In fact, this is the whole point of the Second Thessalonians passage that you mentioned. We, when we read Colossians 2, we also have to read Second Thessalonians 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, and all of the other places where Paul is affirming of tradition, right? Yeah. So yeah. we have to do that. But in addition to that, that's not enough. We need something outside of Scripture to help us interpret Scripture, and that's tradition. Um, in fact, I would say all heresy is the attempt to interpret Scripture apart from tradition. That's what heresy is. Um, and heresy is the focusing on one passage to the exclusion of others and sort of, you know, picking and choosing which passages that, that you want to accept and include in your interpretation. And so... And so this is the problem. I mean, the truth is, you know, if Christians are honest with themselves, all Christians accept some tradition. Right. I mean, anybody who tells you that they don't use tradition, but they celebrate Christmas on December 25th, right? Well, that's a tradition. The date of December 25th is not in the New Testament. So, you know, we, we've, got, we've got to admit that we all accept tradition. We just have to uh, also admit that we need it to help us interpret Scripture. As you, you brought up the issue earlier from your books, 
Uh, in fact, you have a book on the Trinity 101, I think. Yeah, Trinity 101. Okay. Yeah. We believe the Orthodox position in Christianity is one God, three persons, right? called the Trinity. That phrase isn't scriptural. It isn't in the Bible. Even three in one isn't in the Bible. But the reality is that the data for that is in the scriptures, Right. But all the early controversies of the early days of the church were in how to explain that. People fighting right. over how to understand that, which is something that really is beyond our human ability to understand. How can we understand one God and three persons? We can't. We can't fully understand it, but I, I believe we can do our best and we should try to understand it as best we can. And that's what Trinity 101 is about, because in that book, I start with all of the scriptures where the Trinity exists in Scripture, but then I talk about the process of how the Church had to interpret those Scriptures, incorporate them together into, you know, a sort of systematic doctrine, and clarify it and explain it. And, um, you know, even right down to the word consubstantial, which, you know, uh, yeah. is, uh, is a word that needs explaining, right? But it's, uh, but it's extremely important, I think, for us to, to do our best to understand it. Yeah, yeah, transubstantial. Now, I'm a, I'll throw a, be a little devil's advocate on you on because uh, I remember reading your book, which is fine, excellent book, Trinity 101. It's been a couple years back when you were on the journey home. Um, but what puzzles me, this issue of tradition handed on, and, and very early in the church fathers, there was this idea that Jesus delivered this apostolic deposit of faith to his disciples, his apostles, who then passed it on, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. Two, two, you know, you pick guys that you can pass on what I taught you so they can pass it on. Of all the things, we, we recognize the Trinity as maybe the most crucial of traditions that holds Christianity together. If you let tr the Trinity fall into Unitarianism or whatever you got, you end up with chaos in all the other doctrines of the church. And, uh, and probably next to it is the divinity of Christ. And so we have these wonderful two traditions. But what gets me is I can't imagine, as important that is, that when Jesus has his resurrected time with his apostles and he sits them down over a beer, whatever they would have had in those days, that he wouldn't have explained to them the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine that Jesus would have just let that become something that would evolve in the third century or something. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he I think he does explain some things. And I think that, for example, we have to look at passages like um, the end of Matthew, where he gives us the baptismal formula, uh, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so they're being, the, people are being baptized into what? Into a relationship with God. How is that God described in the baptismal formula that God is described as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and then, you know, you have stuff in the Gospel of John where, you know, Jesus says, um, the Father and I are one. And then four chapters, you know, four chapters away from that, he says, uh, the Father is greater than I. Now, you can't pick one or the other of those passages and throw the other one away. You have to you know, you don't ask which one is true. You ask, how are they both? So I think Jesus did teach his apostles uh, maybe as much as they could handle at the time. And uh, and yet still, it was up to the early church to kind of 
put it together in in a way that could be clarified um, to rule out uh, incorrect or heretical understandings of God. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think even as we try and understand Genesis 1 and 2, for example, well, how do you understand that? Well, God is communicating to Moses a way of helping people understand God as creator in a, mm -hmm. in a language and in a context that people can understand. Obviously, they would never have been able to conceive of what we have learned by God's grace over all these centuries about science. And, you know, so he, he speaks to a people. Uh, he's nurturing people, as it says in Hebrews. You know, there's elemental things, and then there's deeper stuff. And mm -hmm. as, as Jesus is helping his fishermen buddies understand what they're going to have to do to communicate this to pagans and yeah. Jews that have their own traditions. And so we're dealing with another issue, Jim, and that is there's there's the traditions of men and there's the traditions that our Lord gives us through the Holy Spirit. But then there's the stuff that our baggage, our own personal traditions, the things we've picked up along the way because I happened to watch this movie when I was 15 years old and it's left an impression on my head about who Jesus is, Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, we've got all these other traditions that are a part of our baggage that Paul is telling the people in, Clint, in Colossians and Ephesians to how do we work through those that stuff so we yeah. can truly find Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. And I mean, there is a discernment process there um, because there are the traditions that are handed down by the church. And then there are traditions that come from other places. And, um, you know, sometimes we in our own lives don't have the perspective to make that call, which is why, again, we need the church and its authority to help us with that and to help us interpret Scripture for our lives. Let me ask you one last question, Jim, deals with your teaching of church history. You know, Newman made that statement to become deep in history is a cease to be Protestant. He made that comment in the beginning of his essay on the development of doctrine. I don't, right. I don't think Newman was saying it was some kind of magical phrase that's true to everyone, but but he does talk about the power of history. And I wonder, from your experience, the study of church history that helps people understand authentic tradition. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this is this is the, the thing that I encountered. I found that statement to be entirely true. I mean, once I, um, I mean, you know, this may sound melodramatic, but when the scales fell from my eyes, right, you know, <laughs> um, and, and I was able to see the uh, see the scriptures and tradition in light of of history. Uh, my only response was to look at the Catholic Church and say, "I have to be part of that. I can't not be part of that." Now, um, I, obviously, there are other people who don't have that same reaction, but uh, it's really become uh, part of my mission and my teaching to at least help students to see. Uh, and this is the point of my book, handed down, that to see that the 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 aspects of Catholic faith and and practice that some Protestants think are added later or traditions of men, you know, that these actually have been part of the church from the beginning. And so, um, you know, things like uh, devotion to the saints, uh, doctrines about Mary, um, you know, Catholic uh, the the our Eucharistic theology. These things are not new. They were not invented in the Middle Ages. They they have been part of the Christian faith from the beginning. And there's just no possible way to go back to a pre-Catholic Christianity. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And when you find that out, you either have to decide, I want to be part of 
part of this long tradition, right? Or or not, but uh, but at least you know you make an informed decision then. And, and I mean, the decision was kind of made for me. I couldn't uh, I couldn't <laughs> decide otherwise. You know. It's called grace. Our guest is Jim Papandrea. Jim, thanks again. Uh, if the audience wants to find out more about your books, is there an author's page or something you could send them to? Yeah, uh, my Amazon author page is actually, you can go to drjimsbooks.com. It's just drjimsbooks.com, no apostrophes or periods. Um, drjimsbooks.com will take you to my Amazon author page. All my books are there. Jim, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure. God Always bless. a pleasure. God bless you and, and your continued work and all of you for joining us today. Thank you very much for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Again, you can go to chnetwork.org to find out about the work of the Coming Home Network or you can go to deepinscripture.com to look at all the old Deep in Scripture programs. And we'd love to hear from you. God bless you. See you again next week.